Good morning once again. Uh, welcome to Missio Church. My name is Levi Pancake. I serve as one of the elders on staff here. It's great to be worshiping with you this morning. As Josh mentioned, if you're a guest with us this morning, we ask that you just take a moment, look at that connection card and the bottom portion there is a spot just for you to give us as much information as you'd like to give us. Please take that to the Connection Center uh, where we have a gift to uh, welcome you this morning. Um, Raise your hand if you were up at 4 a.m. with your kids because their body clock didn't adjust to daylight savings. Anyone? No? Uh, well, uh, okay, maybe one. Uh, hopefully you got that extra hour. Um, I didn't. I was rearing ready to go out of bed here by 5.30, and at about 10.45, I'm going to be ready for my Sunday afternoon nap. So if the sermon ends abruptly, that's why it is nap time. Um, so we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms. And we're in Psalm chapter 9 as we continue this series, Psalms, Songs of the Great King. Song, Psalm chapter 9, um, I believe it's page 451 if you're using the Pew Bible. And uh, please follow along as I read these 20 verses. This is the word of the Lord. To the choir master. According to Muth Laban, a psalm of David, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation." The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, and the net that they hid their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made Himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. Again, Selah. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. 
And we thank you for this time this morning to gather as your people, praising you and worshiping you. We pray now as we consider the truths found in Psalm 9 that you would incline our hearts, that you would open our eyes, that you would give us understanding, and that you would satisfy us with your word and with your promises. Father, we entrust this time to you now, and it's in Christ's name that we pray together. Amen. So, Psalm 9 is a psalm of praise. It's the second one we've come to now as we've gone through uh, the book of Psalms thus far. And it's a psalm of praise, praise to God in the midst of an affliction or hardship, a trial. And it's really broken down where the first half essentially is a call to worship, a call to praise God for His justice. And then the back half is a prayer of faith to God that He may execute His justice. Now, every human heart longs for justice. We long for a judge who is fair and honest, that can see through deceit and lies, that could make a wise ruling. This, this longing is within each human heart, and often then people turn because of this longing to, to governments and to leaders and to rulers. But this psalm points us to the one true judge, the one true king, he who sits enthroned forever, the Lord Most High. And, and the main idea of this psalm is this, that, that God's people, you and I in Christ Jesus, we're called to praise Him and to pray to Him in faith for His justice, particularly in times of affliction. It's an odd thing to consider praising God in times of affliction. Often when we're afflicted, we want to plead to God, rightly so. We want to pray to Him, but to praise Him in the midst of affliction, praise Him for His justice is a bit odd, I'd say. I don't know how natural that is, but that is exactly what this psalm is calling God's people to do. And as I mentioned, the psalm can be broken down into two parts. The first one is a call to worship, a call to praise Him for His justice. And then the back half is a prayer of faith to God for that very same justice. And my hope and prayer is that um, our, our worship of God by meditating and considering the psalm would be strengthened and our faith would indeed be deepened as we consider the truths in Psalm 9. Now, the, the, the psalm starts with this superscription. It says, to the choir master. That means it's a song. According to Muth Laban, that's a tune. I don't think it's the type of tune you'd hear, you know, on Coldplay's new album or Justin Bieber's new tracks, but nonetheless, that's the tune here. And it's a psalm of David. David wrote this psalm. And one interesting point about this psalm and Psalm 10 is that Psalms 9 and 10 are considered an acrostic psalm. Uh, 
So, so what that means is that the, the stanzas of the psalm start with various Hebrew letters. So verse 1 starts with the Hebrew equivalent of the letter A. Verse 3 starts with the Hebrew equivalent of the letter B. Verse 5, Hebrew equivalent of the letter C, and so on and so forth. And uh, so, Psalm 9 actually goes through, with a few letters omitted, um, the first 11 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And then Psalm 10 will pick up on that and, and basically finish the back half of the Hebrew alphabet in this acrostic style. It's something we can't really appreciate in the English language. And now there are, as I mentioned, there are a few letters omitted. Some of them are reversed in order, but it's, it's considered an acrostic psalm. Now, for this reason, some would uh, combine Psalm 9 and 10 together. We actually considered teaching Psalm 9 and 10 um, on, on one Sunday, Sunday morning. Uh, another reason people combine them, uh, there's no superscription in Psalm 10, uh, which is pretty odd in book one of the Psalter. Uh, you also um, see some earlier uh, Latin versions and Greek versions where they're, they're combined. But we've decided um, to follow most Hebrew translations and English translations, and keep them separate. And, and, and one interesting thing, I mean, Psalm 9, as I mentioned, is a psalm of, of praise. Psalm 10 is a lament. So there's a hard right turn in Psalm 10. So we made a judgment call. We we're going to keep them separate. And you'll hear next week from Adam Brago, one of our other elders, as he teaches Psalm 10. But, but why this acrostic style in these two psalms. I mean, why does David go to such great length to try to hit up every letter of the Hebrew alphabet? And most would agree that this is a, a literary way of em- emphasizing the comprehensive scale and scope of God's excellency and supremacy. You know, in the same way that every letter of the Hebrew alphabet testifies to God's greatness, God's goodness, God's majesty, every letter shows us, reveals to us something new and beautiful and excellent about this God that we praise. Verses 1 and 2 right out of the gate, starts with praising God. David writes, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Right out of the gate, starts with praising God. And as I mentioned, uh, we'll see in the psalm, you, you probably picked up on it when I read it in its entirety, all 20 verses. It, it's a unique thing to be praising God in the midst of, of an affliction. I mean, verse 13, David says, that he praised that God, asked him to be gracious to him. There are those who hate him, who are afflicting him. In fact, David says that he feels like he's on the very gates of death. Verse 19, David says, arise, O Lord, like get up, come to my defense. There's clear pain, there's hardship, there's affliction, and yet David starts by praising God with his whole being. He's 
giving thanks to God. He's recounting all of his wonderful deeds. He's glad in the Lord. He's exalting the Lord's name. He's singing praise to him. And he's doing this right out of the gate to to bolster his faith despite his circumstances, to, to muster up strength, to strengthen his soul in the midst of this unspecified affliction in his life. It's right and appropriate, of course, to praise God, but especially in times of affliction. We see praise all throughout the book of Psalms. We see the Lord call us to praise Him all throughout the Scriptures, and that's appropriate and right. God isn't calling us to praise Him because He's, he's needy. He's not calling us to praise Him because He lacks something. He's not calling us to praise Him because He, he needs some attention from us. You know, his, his bucket's feeling a little low, and He needs some people to fill that bucket up. No, not at all. It would… Um, you know, if I started standing up here and started asking you to recount all of my wonderful deeds, Psalm 9-1, you know, if I just started saying, recount all my wonderful deeds, and then I would even lend a hand and try to help you. I mean, my deeds are not that, that wonderful, but I could start listing some attributes. I was prom king in high school. How about that one? Um, I graduated with a 4.0 unweighted GPA in high school. I have a business degree. I have a communication degree. I have a master's degree. Start listing all of these things, and then after I ask you to recount all my wonderful deeds, uh, then I invite you to praise me, make much of me, worship me, tell the nations about me, tell all the peoples about me. Obviously, that's arrogant, ridiculous, stupid. Why? Because I can't infinitely and eternally satisfy you. It's ridiculous for me to ask you to praise me because I can't infinitely and eternally satisfy you. Of course. But hear this. God can. He and He alone can infinitely and eternally satisfy. And it is gracious and generous and loving for God to point us to Him, especially in times of affliction, to redirect our eyes and our minds and our faces on Him that He might infinitely and eternally make us glad and joyful, and satisfied. In fact, it would be unloving of Him if He were to point us to anyone or anything else, for He knows that those things and those people cannot satisfy, fulfill, make glad like He can. So when we praise Him, yes, it glorifies Him and it makes much of His name, but it also leads to, for us, enjoyment, gladness, and satisfaction infinitely.
and eternally. And it's intrinsic within us. It's natural for us to praise things that we find joy in. We know how to do this. Uh, A few weeks ago, my wife uh, grilled some teriyaki steak on the grill outside, and it was fantastic. Um, you know, she, she's out there grilling, and lest anyone thought that, like, the competition was close between, you know, her and I. Is she a better griller or am I a better griller? You know, just in case anyone's confused about it, she's definitely a better griller. And so, we're eating the steak, and about every bite, you know, I just, you cut it with a butter knife, I, I bite into it. It's like, sweetheart, the steak is amazing. Thank you so much for making it. And then I take another bite. It's like, seriously, this is excellent. You have outdone yourself. Take another bite. Jules, seriously, wonderful job. To the point that my seven-year-old daughter, Sophia, said, Dad, we get it. You like the steak. (laughs) It was almost involuntary. I had to praise my wife for making such a wonderful meal. Point being, we know how to praise things that satisfy us. It's appropriate to verbalize that and to communicate that right out of the gate. David is saying, I will recount your wonderful deeds. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will be glad and exalt in you. He's going to sing praise to his name. God himself is the most beautiful, most exciting, most captivating thing in the universe. And if we see him for who he is, our hearts praise him. And as our hearts praise him, we verbalize that. It's a command to respond to him with gladness and pleasure. And the only reason someone doesn't praise God is because they're blind to who he is. And the Psalms, and this Psalm, Psalm 9, constantly lifting our heads up and our faces and pointing our eyes to behold God, who He is and His mighty works, constantly uh, emphasizing another attribute of God, another thing He's accomplished, another thing He can do, while simultaneously communicating His wonderful and beautiful character. We praise God And specifically in times of affliction, it's helpful, beneficial, and appropriate to praise Him in order to to bolster our faith and confidence in Him. And throughout the the remaining part of the first half of Psalm 9, we're going to look at the, the content then of David's praise. Why specifically was David praising God? Verse 3, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. We see David praising God for his deliverance. He's, it's, it's future-oriented. You could even say he's praising God for his future deliverance. That word, when. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. Later on, we're going to see that David is not out of this affliction. His circumstances are still very, very difficult. And yet, he praises God in confidence that God will indeed deliver him. 
The enemies, they're going to turn back. They're going to stumble and perish before his presence. That, that God, he confidently praises him for this. He's, he's going to maintain David's just cause. And he's confident that God sits on the throne giving righteous judgment. Now, this is significant also for us as God's people to just remember that as God's people, even if God, to date, to this point, has not delivered you from whatever affliction, circumstance, trial, or difficulty that you may find yourself in, we can be confident that the Lord sits on His throne and that we can praise Him knowing that God will judge justly and that he will indeed deliver us. And then he continues and he starts praising God for his rule and his reign and his justice. Verse 5, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Verse 6, the enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. So here, David's praising him for this future date where um, God is going to uh, decisively, completely, comprehensively annihilate and obliterate his enemies. Their cities you rooted out, he says. And the very memory of them has perished. Their, their name, it's, it's blotted out. You made the wicked perish. You rebuke the nations. And David, again, like in the midst of this hardship, he's praising God, he's bolstering his faith, and he's just, he's rehashing all of these wonderful things about who God is and what God can do. And he confidently praises him knowing that God rules, God reigns, God is just Despite his circumstances, that does not cease. And so, as he's praising God for this, it serves like a, like a safety harness in difficult circumstances, a safety harness in times of trouble. Uh, last month, I took uh, my daughter, who I mentioned earlier, Sophia, on a uh, little daddy-daughter date during the day to Destiny USA, the, the mall. And um, we get there, and she's always wanted to do the canyon climb, which is there by like P.F. Chang's and that, that wing of the mall. And um, so I just decide we're going we're gonna to do it, just her and I, let's do it. And I, I told my wife about it, and um, she reminded me what she describes as a fear of heights. I don't know if I'm ready to concede that. It's more of I just don't like them very much. But nonetheless, she said, are you going to be okay with that? It's like, I'll be fine. It's not a problem. Sophia will love it. So... Uh, we get out there, you have to take everything out of your pockets, and they uh, attach a safety harness to you, and um, you're up there climbing over three stories. And so you get out there, and I'm thinking I'm going to be fine. Sophia's like giddy with excitement. And I get to the first thing, you like, it's like this obstacle course, these ledges and all this, and my heart just starts beating out of its chest, and my hands are profusely sweating to the point where I can't even grip the safety harness. It's just slipping right off. Like, I can't do it. 
And Sophia is just running down this thing. Like she's doing cartwheels, like a little ninja all over this. And I am like close to hyperventilating, especially the part where you can see three stories down. I'm okay when it's just one story over, but when you look down, they always tell you not to look down, but I have to look where my feet's going. And, and I'm just slow. And the whole time I am uh, what probably appears as frantically screaming uh, at my daughter saying, be careful, watch out, don't do that. She doesn't care. But me, like the only reason I could even take a step forward on that very wide bar that I was stepping on was because I had that safety harness. Despite the fact that I couldn't grip it very well, it gave me confidence in the midst of this very significant trial I found myself in. Couldn't wait for that experience to be over. It lasted 20 minutes too long, in my opinion. But Sophia had a great time. That's what David is pointing to here. He's reminding himself, himself of these truths that, that, that act like a, like a safety harness, giving, giving confidence and uh, security to, to just keep pressing on, to, to just put one foot in front of the other, and you keep going knowing, knowing that God will deal decisively with his enemies. God will right these wrongs. He will deal with the injustices. And so David, once again, reminding himself of these wonderful truths that he may continue to press on in the midst of his affliction. He continues in verse 7. He says, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. He judges the peoples with righteousness. Or He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. This confidence that the Lord sits enthroned forever. He's stable and He's secure. He knows that God's going to deal with the, the wicked and the contrast. I mean, the wicked... He, he says their name is blotted out forever. He says the very memory of them has perished. And then there's this word but. It introduces a contrast. This, contrast that with the temporary nature of his enemies and mankind. The Lord sits enthroned for how long? Forever. How long will the names of the enemies be remembered? They won't. Very temporary. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. And this phrase in verse 8, and he judges the world in righteousness. That's a phrase that Paul picks up on in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. He applies that verse, Psalm 9, verse 8, to Jesus. And, and what he says is essentially that, that David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Like ultimately, you see the Lord judging the world in righteousness through Jesus Christ. You can turn there or you'll see the verses on the screen. But I, I want to highlight this. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. Paul writes this, or, or speaking this actually, in Athens. To a crowd, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere 
to repent. He says, now is the time where everyone needs to turn back to God, repent. You were going this way, running away from Him, now turn back to Him. Why? Because, verse 31 says, He has fixed a day on which, here's that phrase, He will judge the world in righteousness. How will He judge the world in righteousness? By a man whom He has appointed. Spoiler alert, that man is Christ Jesus. And then he gives assurance that that man whom he's appointed can actually carry out the judging of the world in righteousness with this phrase, and of this, this judgment through the man, he has given us assurance to all, how? By raising him from the dead. The fact that Christ raised from the dead should give us assurance that Jesus has the authority, has the ability, has the power to judge the world in righteousness. So we see even David's hope, he's praising God, he's praying in faith. In Psalm 9, David's ultimate hope is fulfilled in Christ, that God displays His glory and His majesty by judging the world in righteousness through Christ Jesus. Every person will be judged in righteousness. They will either allow Christ to be their substitute, absorbing the wrath of God on their behalf, or they themselves will experience God's righteous wrath. And thanks be to God that we or for those of us that are in Christ Jesus, we can praise Him that He has indeed judged our sin in righteousness on the cross, and He has shown that that's true by raising Christ from the dead. And then David continues in Psalm 9 by praising God for championing the weak. Verse 9, he says that the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Part of praising God for His justice is an acknowledgement and a recognition that God champions the weak. He takes up the weak's causes. You look at the news, you see these images of uh, people fleeing from war-torn countries, and this, these verses remind us that He's a stronghold for the oppressed. He doesn't forget about those who are suffering as a result of civil war. We can be confident that, that God cares about those women who are caught up in human trafficking. God does not forget that He cares about the the homes and the families that have been devastated by the opioid epidemic. We can be confident that God is a stronghold for the wife whose husband ignores her. We can be confident that the Lord is a stronghold for the husband whose wife belittles him and emasculates him. We can be confident that the Lord is a stronghold for the child whose parents neglect him or act like they don't want him or her. We can be confident that the Lord is a stronghold for the parent whose child is wayward, have abandoned them or abandoned Christ. This promise 
The Lord is there for those who trust Him. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. For all of us who are in any type of affliction, we can be confident that if we seek the Lord, He will not forsake us. And as a result of that wonderful truth, we can praise Him. He continues in verse 11, sing praise to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples His deeds. For He, verse 12, for He who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. David goes right back to where he started in verse 1. He's praising God for all these wonderful attributes. He's praising God in the midst of affliction. God is trustworthy. God is faithful. God is good. That God was the first avenger. He who avenges blood is mindful of them. Forget Iron Man. Forget Captain Marvel. Forget Spider-Man. God is the true avenger. And he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Verses 1 through 12, David is praising God. It's a call to worship for who God is, specifically His justice. And now it's going to turn, and he's going to pray in faith that God would execute justice. Verse 13, be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Do you remember verse 3? Verse 3 and 4, I said that David praises God for his deliverance. He's confident. He trusts God will deliver him. Now in verses 13 and 14, he prays to God for deliverance. If I were to rephrase it, God, I trust you, I love you, I worship you because I know that you sit enthroned forever and I know that you're going to deliver me. But God, please deliver me. Be gracious to me. Get me out of this affliction. Those who hate me are oppressing me. I feel like I'm on the gates of death. Please deliver me, Lord. Why? Verse 14 tells us, I don't want to be at the gates of death any longer. I actually want to rejoice in your salvation at the gates, the daughter of Zion. I want to tell everyone about how faithful you are and how wonderful you are and how good you are. So that is why I'm asking for deliverance. That's what David is praying here. And there's something about affliction, you know, that just it kind of raises all of our spiritual senses. Charles Spurgeon, uh, he says that when our temporary circumstances are, um, let's say when we're prosperous, we're doing, things are well, um, he says that in those situations, we are most likely to become spiritually lazy. He says that easy roads make sleepy travelers and easy days are close neighbors to temptations, that life's afflictions bring about a a high definition, an acuteness, and a, a sharpness to our faith. And so often when we're in the midst of afflictions, we, understandably so, 
want to be through them as fast as possible. That's a fine desire. But it's very easy for us to forget what God is doing, how He's shaping us, how He's drawing us closer to Himself, how He's um, developing and growing and maturing dependence upon Him in ways that we might not have seen otherwise. David prays to God for deliverance, and he prays to God next that that God's justice and His providence would be executed. Notice verse 15 of Psalm 9. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, in the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made Himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared by the works of their own hands. And then there's these two words, again and Selah. Again, it means to meditate more than likely. Selah means to pause, like reflect on this truth. David is in essence saying a man reaps what he sows. Man makes his bed and now he has to lay in it. And that uh, it's this picture that God doesn't just store up all of his judgment and justice for the very end of days. That there's generally, in most cases, this principle that, well, you see it in verse 15. If you dig a pit to trap someone else, you're going to sink in it yourself. If you try to hide a net to ensnare someone else, your own foot is going to be caught in it. This picture that God weaves justice into the everyday fabric of life. It's, say it another way, like violent men tend to die by violent means. Or the greedy suffer discontent because of their greed. Gossip tears down the character of the one who gossips. As they spread stories, others think less of them. Those who view pornography end up destroying their own sex lives. Again, it's this picture, uh, you reap what you sow. And that is part of how God providentially executes justice and judgment this side of eternity. And then lastly, David prays for God to put man in his place. Verses 17 to the end of the chapter. It says, The wicked, they shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. The needy shall not always be forgotten. The hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Selah. I want to close with an illustration that I read recently from another pastor. And he he told a story about Harvard in 1905 when they were building a new building for their philosophy department. And over the main doorway, this new building, they were going to uh, have an inscription. And so the Department of Philosophy decided that the inscription should read, man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. Now, that's a quote from a philosopher, Protagoras, and, and that's basically one of the earliest statements that we have from, uh, that promotes relativism. 
And in many ways, it summarizes man's rejection of God. The faculty instructed the architect to carve the quote above the door. But the president of Harvard University, Charles William Eliot, quietly decided otherwise. When the professors returned from the summer vacation, they found the building essentially complete and cut into the stone were not the words, man is the measure of all things, but rather they saw these words, what is man that thou art mindful of him? That's from Psalm 8, and the inscription still stands there today. This, I think, captures neatly man's rebellion against God. The human heart says, it's all about me, I'm the center of the world, what I feel goes, everyone else needs to adjust to me accordingly, there is no one else above me, I am the measure of all things, and David prays in faith to God, let not man prevail, arise, O Lord, get up, God, please do something about this. Let the nations know that they are but men. Put them in fear, O Lord. Do you know that you are but man? Do you know that you are but woman? Sure, made in the image of God, precious in His sight. But I'm not God, and you're not God. And as we consider who we are in light of who He is, if we see Him for who He is, it causes us to praise Him. It causes us to trust Him in faith, knowing that He is good and gracious and kind. May we be a people, despite our circumstances, despite whatever afflictions we may be going through right now, may we be a people who proclaim with words in our lives Psalm 9, 1 and 2. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. May we be a people who do that, who sing that, who herald that in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for these truths, and we pray that we would be a people who can uh, praise you in order to bolster our faith and muster up our faith. Father, you know You know, you sit enthroned forever. You know the afflictions that every soul here is going through right now. And we can be confident that you are just, that you will deal with it, that you will handle it. And may these truths act like a safety harness for us. Our longing for justice can be found in you. Strengthen us, Lord, with these wonderful truths this morning. And it's in Christ's name that we pray together. Amen.